I'm sure we've all been inspired by the stories of Christians who have stood up uh, for God in the face of intense pressure and been vindicated. Uh, for many, the story of Eric Liddell is right up there. Uh, the son of Scottish missionary parents, he was selected to run the, the 100 and 200 metres in 1924 in the Olympics in Paris. Uh, the 100 metres was, was his best event, but he refused to run in the heat for it because it was held on a Sunday. He won the bronze medal in the 200 metres, but then uh, surprisingly run, won gold in the 400, uh, which he hadn't trained for, uh, and even set a world record time. Or to take a biblical example, we have Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who, who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. They're thrown into the fire. Uh, and what happens, boys and girls, what happens to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when they're thrown into the fire? Well, will they come out unsinged uh, when even those who threw them in are, are burned up by the heat? But what about when it doesn't work out like that? What if standing up for Jesus doesn't work out so well in, in terms of what happens to us in this life? Uh, at the starting blocks of the 400 metres, Eric Liddell was handed a piece of paper uh, by a member of the American team with, with the words of 1 Samuel 2.30 written on it. Those who honour me, I will honour. But what about the times when God's people try to honour him and perhaps die without being vindicated? Well, 1 Kings 21 reminds us that sometimes that vindication doesn't come, at least not in this life. And, and yet if that is the case, it's not because God doesn't see or because God isn't paying attention. We're going to look at this chapter under three headings, uh, saying firstly... Uh, sometimes following God in this life doesn't end well. Sometimes following God in this life doesn't end well, uh, at least uh, humanly speaking. Does it matter what a politician believes about God? Uh, does it matter whether a politician uh, worships a, a thousand gods uh, like uh, the Mormons or uh, whether they, they worship uh, no God? Uh, does it matter whether a, a, a politician thinks that Jesus is God or that Allah is God? Uh, the most common answer, even among many Christians, would be no. Uh, religion, that's a private thing uh, and it can uh, and should be kept separate from public policy. But can religion and politics be so easily separated? Well, the message of the Bible over and over again is that the refusal of kings to worship the true God uh, does affect the people that they lead. Here in verse 25, we read that there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. And in verse 26, we read that he acted very abominably in going after idols and idolatry and, and wickedness, uh, they are connected. Idolatry is, is a form of wickedness, but it will also lead to other wickedness. 
Uh, and in 1 Kings 20 and 21, we see Ahab at his worst. Uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier in chapter 20, Ahab spares the life of an evil Gentile king that he should have killed. Whereas here in this chapter, he, he goes after the life of one of his own people whom he should have been protecting. The story starts off with what seems a, a reasonable request uh, from Ahab in verse 2. Uh, Naboth has a vineyard beside his palace. Ahab wants it. So Ahab, he, he doesn't just go and grab it. He offers him a better vineyard. But Naboth says no. And uh, perhaps we might think that, that Naboth is being unreasonable. Ahab, he's giving him a fair offer. It's not just him issuing a compulsory purchase order uh, the way uh, that happens these days when, when someone wants to build a road through where someone's house is. Uh, maybe Naboth is just being, being sentimental. Uh, can he not just take another vineyard? But there is something important about this particular vineyard. Verse 1 says, Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel. Now that might seem obvious. If Naboth is a Jezreelite, of course his vineyard is going to be in Jezreel. Uh, But the Bible isn't unnecessarily multiplying words here. Uh, It's emphasizing that this isn't a vineyard that Naboth has somehow acquired. Uh, but one that he has inherited from his ancestors. In verse 3, Naboth says to Ahab, The Lord forbid, uh, and he doesn't say the Lord forbid that I should give you uh, this vineyard of mine, but the Lord forgive that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. According to Leviticus 25, the land was not to be permanently sold. If someone became poor, a relative known as the kinsman redeemer could buy the land from them. Or if there's no relative, someone else could buy it. But every 50th year, it was the year of jubilee and the land had to be returned to its rightful owner. It was a reminder that the land all belonged to God. And yet at the same time, the land was part of the people's inheritance. It was part of the blessing of living in the promised land. So to sell it would be to to say that you didn't think much of God or his gifts. Now we wouldn't expect Jezebel, the pagan queen, to, to care about Israelite inheritance laws. But Ahab, Ahab would have known all this. And so Naboth isn't being awkward here, he's simply being obedient. So he says, no. And how does Ahab react when he doesn't get his way? Well, he's like a, like a spoiled child, isn't he? Uh, it would nearly be, be unbelievable if we didn't know our own hearts. He, he goes into his house vexed and sullen, lies on his bed, turns his face against the wall, and refuses to eat anything. His, his desire gnaws away at him. Uh, Matthew Henry points out that discontent is a sin that brings with it its own punishment. Uh, most sins, we, we, we commit them first and, and then punishment or consequences come later. Uh, but discontent brings the punishment built in. Uh, 
it makes people torment themselves. It makes the, the body uh, sick, the spirit sad. It, it turns all enjoyments sour because we can't have that one thing. Uh, and doesn't it remind us that whether we are content or not won't depend on our circumstances? In the Bible, we see Paul content in a prison and Ahab discontent in a palace. You can be content in a prison and discontent in the palace. Ahab had everything uh, that the world could offer. He had wealth, power, honour. But suddenly it means nothing if he can't have this vineyard. He has everything, but he wants just one more thing. Uh, and you might remember from another week that, that Jezreel wasn't even the capital city. Uh, so this isn't Ahab's main residence. This is, uh, we, we could call it his, his holiday home. Uh, and because he can't have the, have the sort of garden at his holiday home that he wants, it, it's consuming him. It's ridiculous. But how often are we the same? If only I could have that one thing, uh, that would make me happy. And as soon as we get it, well, then there's something else, isn't there? Uh, Again, Matthew Henry says, Those who are disposed to fret, be they ever so happy, will always find something or other to fret at. And then his wife comes home. How does she respond in verse 7 when she sees what he's doing? She says, Do you not now govern Israel? And that's not her telling him to to put things in perspective, that he's king over all Israel. What does a vineyard matter? No. Uh, For Jezebel, it is laughable that a king could be restricted by uh, one of his citizens. Uh, As as an outsider, uh, as a pagan queen, her idea of kingship was very different uh, from from what God said that kings should be like. Uh, She had no sense of the the checks and balances that that scripture gives. Uh, Her idea of of kingship is of an absolute monarchy, unchecked by any moral restraints. And so she sets about getting Ahab at what he wants. Uh, with ruthless efficiency, she writes letters sealed with a seal, gets false witnesses to secure Naboth, or to accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king, and has him stoned to death. And there's no happy ending for Naboth, not in this life, no vindication, just a, a, a crumpled mass of flesh and bone. Those who honour me, I will honour. That is still true. Uh, But it won't always, uh, and won't often take the form of outward vindication. If you take a stand for Jesus Christ, there there are no guarantees it will end well, humanly speaking. Being faithful to God when the pressure comes doesn't mean that your your business will prosper or, or or your, your, your family life will, will, will go uh, smoothly. Uh, and maybe you've taken a stand for what's right and you've been shunned, you've been ostracized, you've lost friends or, or family members uh, as a result of it. Uh, you've lost their 
their regard, their, their friendship, uh, their company. Well, 1 Kings 21 is a reminder that, that at times things like that will happen. Here we have a single faithful Christian standing up to the government and he's smashed. And sometimes that's the way it will be. Uh, one estimate puts the number of Christian martyrs in the 20th century at 45 million. Most of them uh, nameless, faceless and forgotten. Even, even to, to the church, never mind the world. For every Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, there, there are countless more uh, for him standing up to the state resulted in a quick death. I was reading uh, during the week a prayer request. Uh, apparently China are, are taking the opportunity while, while all this is going on in Israel and the attention is el- elsewhere. China is taking the opportunity to send about 50 escapees back to North Korea. Uh, 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 many of them Christians uh, and the most likely uh, fate for most of them is execution Uh, so sometimes following God doesn't mean vindication in this life but then secondly this evening God sees even if nobody else does God sees even if nobody else does Jezebel's plan goes like clockwork. Her instructions in verses 8 to 10 are carried out to the letter in verses 11 to 13. Then Ahab goes down to take possession of the vineyard. Have you ever been at the cinema and the credits start to roll and people start getting up and walking towards the exit? And suddenly there's a final scene that is shown. You thought it was all over. But it turns out it wasn't quite the end of the story. Uh, Well, we have something like that here. In verse 16, it's as if the the credits are ruling after a successful uh, operation by Ahab and Jezebel. But suddenly in verse 17, they stop. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Ahab thinks he's got away with it. But God, through Elijah, puts his hand on his shoulders and says, Stop right there. Because even kings and queens must answer to God for what they've done. In verse 20 we see Elijah's reaction as Ahab arrives. Talk about a guilty conscience. Have you found me, O my enemy? And do you notice what he's doing? He's trying to take the sting out of what Elijah is about to say uh, by making out that, 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 that Elijah is, is speaking out of personal hostility to Ahab. And don't we see that today? I try and take a stand for the biblical definition of marriage uh, and you'll be asked uh, by many, well, well, well why do you hate uh, such and such people? It's the sort of thing people do when they, when they can't answer your arguments. They pretend that it's, that it's personal. But Elijah isn't put off. He, he, he says what God has told him to say. Have you killed and also taken possession? Maybe we'll say, well, well Ahab didn't, didn't kill anyone. But he doesn't get off with it because he wasn't the one who pulled 
the trigger or sent the letters. He knew full well how far Jezebel would go to get her way. Verse 25 recognizes that Jezebel incited him to do evil. But in a way, rather than than excusing him, it simply aggravates his guilt. Because it shows that not only was he wicked, he was also weak. Not just sinful, but also spineless. And Ahab here is being called to account. Whereas Jezebel would say to him, you're the king of Israel, you can do what you like. God says, you're the king of Israel, so you must answer to me. And so in verse 22, God announces through Elijah that this will be the end of Ahab's dynasty. uh, That his royal family will come to an end. Not just because of Naboth, but, but that is the final straw. And we can be sure that the God who saw the sin of the king and queen also saw the the spineless compliance of those who did what Jezebel told them to do. The nation was in such a state that no one objected to these orders to falsely accuse and kill one of their own. Maybe some were uncomfortable with it, but they knew what Jezebel was capable of if they didn't fall into line. And again, this is a challenge for us today that there will be people saying to us, even Christians, well, you might disagree with this personally, but it's now the law of the land, so you just have to fall in with it. But First Kings 21 shows that a country is in a bad state when people say, well, well, the government says we have to do it, so we have to do it. But if something is morally wrong, uh, making it the law of the land it doesn't change anything. So God sees the oppressors, whether they're active or or passive. But particularly, we want to notice that God sees the oppressed. God sees the oppressors, yes, but he also sees the oppressed. Naboth's name is mentioned 15 times in this chapter. Even after he's dead, his name is mentioned six times in three verses. Even after Ahab takes possession of the vineyard, you notice what it's called in in, in verse 18. In God's eyes, he is in the vineyard of Naboth. It's still Naboth's vineyard. Uh, One commentator says that, that Naboth here haunts the scene like a ghost that will not be laid to rest. Everyone else is ready to, to kill him, to take his property, to move on. But God says, not so fast. And like Naboth, perhaps the injustice or persecution that you have faced has been ignored, swept under the carpet, or forgotten by the world. But God isn't going to forget it. In this world, people may and people do get away with wrongs that they have done but they will not get away with them forever you may go to uh, your grave with with uh, sins committed against you unresolved and unpunished but you can be sure that that one day god will bring people to justice And, and in a way that should free us to live in a world of injustice 
We can leave our vindication to God, knowing that he has seen what has happened to us, even if nobody else has. And Naboth, he lived and died in the hope that God would vindicate him. So God sees what happens to the oppressed. Even greater than that, God knows. He, he understands. He knows what it's like. Do parts of this story sound familiar? Uh, the, the accusation of blasphemy, the, the pretense of concern that God is being dishonoured, in this case by holding a fast, the, the sham trial, the, the two witnesses, the public execution outside the city walls. All of this would one day happen to Jesus. Matthew twenty six fifty nine. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward. It had all happened before in 1 Kings 21. Just as, as Naboth was betrayed by people in his own city, uh, so was the Lord Jesus. Uh, verse 11 here, and the men of, of his city, we could say about Jesus, the men of Jerusalem, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, they did as Satan incited them to do. So we shouldn't be surprised when persecution comes, we follow someone who was crucified. Church history tells us that only one of Jesus' disciples died a natural death. According to Jewish tradition, the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. Uh, the apostle Paul, he got off lightly. He was only beheaded as a Roman citizen. Uh, and so let's uh, always remember that even though what we're facing uh, may be becoming more severe, it's still nothing compared to what many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are facing. So we shouldn't be surprised when trouble comes, but we can also take comfort that the Lord Jesus experienced worse persecution than any of us ever will. And so there is no injustice and no suffering that he doesn't understand. There is no injustice and no suffering that we can face that he doesn't understand. Secondly, tonight God sees even if no one else does. Thirdly, finally and more briefly, uh, we see that God is a God of surprising grace. So the credits have been about the roll uh, and then God sends Elijah. But then when we think we're at the end of the story again, there's another plot twist. We've just been giving a, given a damning incitement of Ahab's reign in verses 25 and 26. There was no one who'd done evil like him. He had acted not just abominably, but very abominably. What happens in the next verse? Ahab hears God's sentence on him, tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, fasts, and goes about dejectedly. For the second time in this chapter, Ahab isn't eating. But this time it's not because he's humbling, or it's not because he's huffing, but because he's humbled himself. And 
Perhaps we immediately think, well, it's just crocodile tears. It's not genuine. But then in the next verse, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And while we may not be impressed by Ahab's show of remorse, God is. Uh, There is a delight in verse 29. Have you seen it? Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Maybe that just sounds a bit too easy. We, we sang earlier about, about God being a God of vengeance. Uh, and at times people will talk about the moral problem of the Bible or the moral problem of the Old Testament. Uh, and, and by that they usually mean uh, lots of people being, being killed. But is this not a moral dilemma too? Ahab is the worst king in Israel's history to date. Surely he cannot just say sorry and move on. Surely something has to be done about it. Well, if you say something has to be done, you're right. But Ahab can't do anything. What what could he say or do to cancel out a man's murder on top of everything else that he's done? The only hope for Ahab was that nine centuries later, Jesus Christ would come, live a perfect life, be condemned on the testimony of two false witnesses and die in the place of sinners. That was Ahab's only hope back then. That is our only hope tonight. The gospel tells us that we are way too bad to be able to change the situation ourselves. But what Jesus did was so perfect and complete that all we have to do is trust in him and all he won on the cross will be given to us. And so in one sense the question of whether Ahab's repentance was genuine doesn't matter because the shocking thing is that that all it would have taken was to genuinely confess his sins and trust in God's promised saviour and he would have been saved though sadly as time passes it seems that this wasn't real repentance it it seems to have been genuine at the time from Ahab's point of view at least but but true repentance will keep going and so when the dust settles we'd, we'd probably call it remorse rather than repentance but if God was, was so ready to respond to Ahab's remorse, how much more would he have been ready to respond to lasting repentance? God's delay of punishment is an invitation to Ahab to keep living by faith and repentance. And even the temporary repentance that Ahab shows is enough to delay judgment. And yet at the end of the day, that's all it can do. Every sin we've ever committed must be punished either in us or in Jesus. If someone doesn't trust in Jesus, they may be able to delay judgment, but that is all. But in Christ, God offers the opportunity, not simply for judgment to be delayed, but for it to be dealt with. So as we close tonight, 1 Kings 21 is as relevant as it's ever been. Uh, perhaps more so than it has been for a while. Sometimes following God doesn't end well. It didn't for Naboth. He honoured God and he was honoured on the pages of the Bible, but he didn't live to see it. And yet even if vindication doesn't come in this life, uh, 
you can be confident that God sees, even if no one else does, that Jesus Christ knows what it is like to experience the worst forms of injustice and slander and accusation that this world can throw at anyone. Uh, Having this confidence frees us to to tell the world about a God of surprise and grace uh, and prepares us for the fact that at times we may be uncomfortable not with the fact that God seems too severe but with the fact that God seems too merciful. And wasn't that Jonah's problem? Jonah's problem wasn't with God's justice but with God's mercy. And in fact, only in Jesus Christ can we tie the two things together, that God can be both just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. And because of that, we have an inheritance that won't be taken away, no matter what people in this world may do to us, because it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who through God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. Well, let's sing of our inheritance now from Psalm 16. Psalm 16, uh, tune uh, Weatherby 175. It's page 22, Psalm 16, the first five verses. Here we sing of someone who, like Naboth in verse 1, trusts in God, who in verse 2 delights in God's people, who in verse 3 refuses to worship other gods even when pressure comes, and who in verses 4 and 5 rejoices in his spiritual inheritance. Uh, But the rest of the psalm, uh, which is quoted in the New New Testament uh, as about the Lord Jesus Uh, makes clear that we're singing here of of someone who is uh, far greater than than Naboth. Uh, Someone who, uh, at the end of the psalm in verse 9, the grave cannot hold. And so as we sing, let's do so in gratitude for Jesus Christ and the inheritance he has won for us. Psalm 16, 1-5, we'll stand and sing. (laughs) 